0: Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. Yes, God. God don't never change. Welcome to The Podcast. This is episode 288. I'm Douglas Wilson, and you are whoever you are. Thank you for joining us. Good to have you here. The war in Ukraine continues to stagger on, and uh, I want to I want to revisit this subject for for several reasons. The first thing I want to say is that I've got friends in Ukraine. Uh, My sympathies are entirely with the Ukrainian people as they try to fight off the Russian aggression, and I hope Russia loses, and I hope Russia loses badly. So that's the first thing. But it's possible to feel that way because people tend to think in terms of white hats only and black hats only. Uh, they sometimes don't recognize what a royal mess this whole thing is. The government of Ukraine has been famously uh, corrupt, as is, uh, and I'm not saying this in a, any kind of finger pointing way, because the government of the United States is also famously corrupt. Ukraine is being used and has been used. As a massive money laundering slush tank uh, for people to, for American politicians to get rich off of. So it's possible, for example, and this, these are two things that it should be possible to hold in your mind at the same time. And I'm going to add a third one in a minute. It's possible to say, I hope the Ukrainians successfully expel the Russians from their borders. I hope they win the war. I hope Russia loses the war on the one hand. And on the other hand, say that a lot of American politicians are engaged in dirty deeds up to their necks yeah. as they are, are using Ukraine as a means of personal enrichment. So uh, basically, we, we have to recognize that wars, particularly modern wars, are immensely profitable for some people. I mean, there are arms manufacturers and there are weapons systems and there are things that the incentives to peace are all wrong for some people. Just put it that way. And so consequently, you have this system where Ukrainian oil, Ukrainian weapons systems, who gets a cut? Uh, Rand Paul attempted in in a package of aid that went to Ukraine. He attempted unsuccessfully to simply have that money audited right in other words it wasn't a debate over whether we give the money or not but and i'm i'm in this i'm in the same corner let's give aid to ukraine but with the stipulation that it be carefully audited and accounted for the pentagon just recently acknowledged that they had made a 6 billion dollar error to ukraine's advantage and the money was unaccounted for. What uh, 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 that's just no that's just no good. That's just an invitation to the wrong kind of people being involved in that mess over there. And then there's the um, uh, the third problem, the third problematic factor of the war hawks. So, having said that I hope Ukraine wins, I hope Ukraine expels the Russians, and I hope that we continue to support them surreptitiously uh, under the table. Uh, there's a press going on now saying that some people want, Erdogan of Turkey has said that he wants Ukraine admitted to NATO. Well, here's the problem. NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, has set a treaty commitments that, it, uh, that an attack on one is an attack on all. That means if Ukraine comes into NATO and Ukraine is at war with Russia, that that means, at the same time, that every other NATO uh, nation is also at war with Russia, and welcome to World War III. I don't think anybody wants that. I don't think anybody in their right mind should want that. And so, consequently, uh, uh, no. <laughs> let me let me think about it. Should, should you, Ukraine join NATO? Let me think about it. No. Now, down the road, yeah, okay, makes sense. Let's talk about it. But let's not talk about it when we're in a situation... Like this one, the situation like this one simply means that we're asking to have the uh, the whole thing spiral out of control. Always will be God. So, episode two eighty eight, continuing on in our study of homartiology, we come to a word that is used twice in the New Testament, once to refer to a sinful action and once to a godly one. Uh, the word is utanos, utanos, e u t o. N-O-S, utanos, which is rendered in the first instance as vehemently and in the second as mightily. So, in the first instance, during the trial of Jesus before Herod, those who were accusing him could not contain their malice. Right? They were they were supposed to be acting judicially. They're supposed to be acting like respectable judges, but they just couldn't contain themselves. Luke twenty three ten and the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him, vehemently accused him. In other words, it was a, it was a boiling pot, and and you can see uh, how it, when Jesus is later condemned, finally and you know and they're hitting him, slapping him, uh, taking swings at him. Uh, this is <laughs> this is not a judicial proceeding. This is a lynching. The chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him before Herod. Now, they were they were engaged in making a show of conducting a legal proceeding, but everything about it was irregular. Jesus was tried at night, which was illegal. The witnesses did not agree, and the prosecution was, shall we say, emotionally invested. Now, the use of the same word, euthanos, uh, to refer to a godly action is one that describes Apollos. In Acts, Luke says this, for he mightily there it is for he mightily convinced the jews and that publicly showing by the scriptures that jesus was christ that's acts 18:28 so in the way in the same way that the jews the chief priests and of the jews vehemently accused jesus before herod so also apollos vehemently or mightily or powerfully uh, proved that jesus was the christ in his uh, in his preaching and his declaration so, here, the action is forceful and vigorous, but not filled with malice. So, if you have a malice-filled vehemence, it's the sin. If you have a a zeal that's full of holiness, but a zeal that burns nonetheless, then what you have is uh, something like what Apollos had, mightily. God don't change. He's God. Uh, The book I would like to review this time around for episode 288 is a book by uh, Yoram Hazoni, a Jewish uh, writer, scholar, activist. Had the pleasure of meeting uh, Yoram in a recent trip, our recent trip to Israel, and uh, a very gracious uh, gentleman. And I had read a previous book of his, which I think I've probably. Reviewed here on this on the podcast, he wrote the a book called The Virtue of Nationalism, The Virtue of Nationalism, which was a very very good book, and I had bought his book on conservatism, uh, and it's entitled basically Conservatism, A Rediscovery, Conservatism, A Rediscovery, and uh, it was on my shelf. And then after I met him in Israel, and was uh, again suitably impressed, doubly impressed, impressed again. I came back to the states and pulled the book down off the shelf, and I'm reading it now. Conservatism is uh, more of a, I would say, conservatism is more of a temperament and a disposition than it is a set of ideological commitments. It it um, it necessitates a certain set of ideological commitments, but it grows out of the it grows out of the temperament. So the great Thomas Sowell once described the difference between leftist progressives and conservatives uh, this way. Uh, Progressives think in terms of solutions and conservatives think in terms of trade offs. Okay. Progressives think in terms of solutions and conservatives think in terms of trade offs. Well, what does that mean? If you see a pressing social problem, the typical leftist reaction is to Uh, get whipped up into a meringue, and demand that our politicians, uh, quote-unquote, do something. You know, it could be teen pregnancy, it could be uh, some sort of, um, well, it could could be some sort of pandemic. So uh, And what this does is it moves us into a ready, fire, aim sort of scenario. What's necessary in this um, setup is for people to be seen to be uh, for the leaders to be seen as men of action. We're doing something. The conservative knows that everything that you do comes at a cost, and whatever it is that you're uh, spending to do that thing is something that cannot be spent elsewhere. It's a trade-off. So the conservative temperament, the conservative demeanor, uh, says that I don't think that we are going to solve every problem. I don't think we're going to solve any problem perfectly. I don't think we're going to get there. And so what we have to do is approach this cautiously to make sure that in the first instance, we don't ignore the trade-off uh, issue. And by that ignoring, make everything worse. Another distinction, this is what comes out in Hazoni's uh, book, is that enlightenment rationalism wants us to be governed in accordance with what the big brains with great Ideological blueprints have come up with. They might be right-wing social theorists like John Locke, or left-wing like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, or sort of hard-headed realists like Thomas Hobbes. Uh, but you've got the the guys with the fifty-pound brains. They get together in a room and they draw up. They drop the blueprints for society. Here's the ideal. This is we want to be governed by the light of reason. We want to be. Uh, and reason? What's that? Well, that's what the guys with the big brains are coming up with. Conservatives are much more uh, what might be called uh, historical empiricists. They they want to trust what our fathers and forefathers have come up with. They want to stay with the tried and true. They want to dance with the one what brung you. So, for example, uh, the common law system of England is a quintessentially conservative approach to law. Uh, so 300 years ago, let's say a a widow had her dog eat the neighbor's chicken and a judge handled the case. And then 50 years later, down the road in another village, someone's ox gored the neighbor's dog. And the judge in the second case looked at the first case and extracted from it the the principles and made a, a decision in terms of that. That sort of precedent uh, dependent slow cooking slow approach to law is something that enables us to shall we say depend upon or rely upon the wisdom of people who are long since dead and this is this is where this is what lies behind chesterton's comment that tradition is simply a democracy that is expansive en- enough to include the dead people let the dead people vote also. And if you're letting the dead people vote also, you are taking long experience into account. And again, citing Chesterton, here's another aspect. There's a thought experiment called Chesterton's fence. Chesterton said, if, some, if a reformer comes along and says, I want to take down this fence, Chesterton says, we will not allow him to take down the fence until he can tell us what the reason was for putting it up. Uh, why was it put up in the first place? If you if you just take down the fence because it seems like a good idea at the time, you're not thinking in terms of trade offs. You're thinking in terms of an immediate solution. You've got a problem. The fence is in the way, and you're going to solve that problem by taking the fence down. But until you know why the fence was put up, you don't know what you're doing. Here in the Pacific Northwest, we're we're dealing with uh, this with uh, now with environmentalists. Demanding that we blow up the dams, uh, so we've got dams on on a number of our rivers and have inexpensive hydropower here in the Pacific Northwest. And the environmental activists want us to to blow up the dams, get rid of the dams. Well, uh, they're thinking in terms of salmon and salmon populations. They see a problem and they see the dam is the locus of the problem. So let's blow up the dam. Well why why were the dams put up in the first place it wasn't as though somebody said hey how can we annoy the salmon <laughs> and, and let's spend let's spend millions of dollars um frustrating the, the salmon as they try to get back to the to spawn no the dams were uh, put in as a means of flood control among other things power and, and once you're going to once the dam is there you use it for power but Prior to the dams being put in, floods would ravage a number of places up and down the rivers. And so, what hap- what's going to happen is, if we solve the salmon problem by blowing up the dams, you're going to find yourself with floods just like the olden times, just like just like the uh, the way it used to be. And if you want to learn how to ride the brake, if you want to learn how to think cultivate a a demeanor that is truly conservative. Hazoni's book, Conservatism, A Rediscovery, is just a wonderful historical survey of how our forefathers thought. The issues that confront us today are not uniquely modern issues. They are perennial issues. And we are harming ourselves by thinking that we can just, sit down with a uh, blank sh- uh, pad of paper and and figure out what to do on our own with an appeal to inexperienced reason alone <laughs>